I think it was in the midst of a group of pastors, but I don't remember for sure, that someone once asked Dallas Willard to pick one word to describe Jesus. And Dallas surprised everybody by saying, relaxed. Right? I mean, that just sounds kind of casual, right? And um, not, not the first word that might come to someone's mind, you know, regarding Jesus. You might think, you know, instead of picking a posture, you know, or an attitude like that, that, you know, someone might have said rightly, like a word like love or wisdom or authority or powerful or holy. But I think Dallas was actually getting something really important in that our gospel reading this morning unearthed for it. And that is that underneath everything who Jesus was, the kind of being that he embodied in himself was born from a relaxed, confident relationship with his father. Now, on the other hand, for us, we can just stop and think for a moment how much of life is animated by fear. Just think of how much of human life is animated by fear. And according to the latest study I could find yesterday that seems to be clear to most people that anxiety is reaching epidemic levels and that it affects one in five human beings. So next time you're in line at the store or sitting in a movie theater, just look around you. One out of every five person is probably dealing with some sort of disabling form of anxiety. And so our gospel reading this morning, the story it tells, is really for me, and at least in me and the way my imagination works, kind of the conceptual framework for why you've heard me say so many times that we are always safe in the kingdom of God. I mean, this is quite often the story I have in my mind when I say that. So the backdrop, of course, you know, is that these kind of vicious pop-up storms with really fierce winds and high waves, you can look at your picture if you want, super common on the Sea of Galilee. Now, I want you to picture in the midst of this storm with high waves, you know, maybe 6, 8, 10, 12 feet high, just picture a Duffy boat, right? Can you picture those little boats that, you know, people take out on the bay? That's about what these guys were in. Seriously, they're in something like a Duffy boat with these huge high waves around them overwhelming the boat as these waves crest, they're crashing onto the boat. And this story then is revealing to us as Mark is doing, like if we just think for a minute in terms of Mark as a gospel. So just from a literary point of view, Mark's been telling us that Jesus in his manner of being And in the things that he teaches and in his deeds of power, such as casting out demons, healing the sick, raising the dead. So in his being, in his teaching, and in his deeds, he's showing us what the inbreaking of the kingdom of God means and what it looks like. And whenever Jesus is talking about or demonstrating, as I would say he is in this story, showing his power over nature, there's always, when you think of the kingdom, a final consummation aspect to it. So, for instance, uh, Tim Keller has written that part of what we're meant to get out of this story is the notion that someday Jesus says, I'm going to calm all storms, I'm going to still all waves, and I'm going to destroy destruction. I'm going to break the power of brokenness. I'm going to kill death. And one day I'm going to consummate a kingdom where brokenness and suffering will be completely and finally undone. Right? So that, that, I think, is the kind of theological bit. 
That, that this is just another way for Mark to show us how Jesus is bringing the kingdom of God to pass. But in terms of a spiritual metaphor, using this story to think about our own formation in Christ, a storm is something that's anything overwhelming. Just think of the waves cresting and crashing over the boat. So a storm is anything that's overwhelming, anything that makes us feel like we're sinking or that God has lost control. It's anything we go through that causes us to wonder, if God loves me, why are you letting me go through this? Why are you letting me die utterly helpless in this storm? And so for us, it's things like scary diagnoses of illness, things that happen to our children, things that happen to our parents, things that happen in our marriage, or employment and money, or just kind of a darkness in the soul, or loneliness, or a debilitating anxiety. It's, it's anything that causes us to ask God, who seems to be asleep at the time. It's anything that makes us think, surely he knows what's going on. I mean, yeah, he was tired from the press of all the people around him, and yeah, we did need to get away from the crowds, and it's cool that Jesus was asleep, on the cushion, you know, in the back of the boat for the helmsman. Like, that's cool, that's fine, everybody gets that. But come on, no one sleeps through this. So surely he knows what's going on. Because if they didn't think that, like just follow the, the sort of the psychological logic of this. If they didn't think he knew what was going on, why would they ask, don't you care for me in this situation? Don't you care that we're perishing? And the Greek term there for perishing means can't you see that we're being destroyed? It's a common word for death. It's can't you see that we are going to die here? There's no way out of this storm. We're in this little duffy boat. The waves are way too high. We are going to die here. So when finally awoken by this questioning, Jesus stands up and he rebukes the wind and says to the sea, peace, be still." And the wind ceased, which is what produces these storms, and there was a great calm. And you know here the disciples are beginning to wonder, whoa, from where does such authority come? Now, they had seen him say, come out and demons flee. They had seen him say, be well, and people were healed. They'd heard him teach and said, We've never heard anybody teach with this sort of authority. Like, where does this come from? And what they're beginning to learn is, is that Jesus is creator, Lord, he's architect, and repairman. And again, from a formational point of view, I just can't tell you, as your friend Todd, how many times I rely on this story to impart confidence to me that as I just go through my daily life feeling its pain, its uncertainties, its confusions, its hardships, there's something about this story that I think is meant to birth in us a kind of sureness, a certainty, but the kind of certainty that only can come from experience. Like it's only in going through storms and realizing that God is there and that we are okay. Like little by little over the months and years and decades, that begins to roll up to a kind of relaxed, calm confidence. But this isn't the kind of thing that like we can do to one another. We can't say to each other, 
you ought to have peace. You should be more tranquil in this situation. Right? Or when you're at a dinner or somebody and somebody quotes James 1 saying, you know, you should just count it all joy. And you just want to say, can you just shut up? Right? I mean, that's why those things don't work. I mean, yeah, it's okay to remind ourselves, you know, what the Bible says. But the reason that rarely works for you is that this isn't doctrinaire kind of knowledge that's being imparted. This is deeply personal and experiential knowledge. It was real water, real wind, real trying to tie everything down, real trying to bail the water out, real thinking that Jesus is sleeping and he doesn't seem to care that we're gonna die. Right? Like if that's not real, well, then you don't have any source of wisdom. You don't have any sense of like personal knowledge. It's only when it's real and not just a story that there's some sort of personal knowledge. But peaceful confidence in the storms of life is not just a matter of logic. And you know, there is some sound thinking though that I think does help us. Again, thinking of this passage from Keller. Tim said, I think this is super helpful. If you have a God great enough and infinite enough and powerful enough to be mad at because he doesn't stop your suffering, did you catch that? Like if God's big enough, powerful enough, infinite enough that you can logically be mad at him for not stopping your suffering, Tim says, well, then you also have a God who's great enough and infinite enough and powerful enough to have reasons to allow you to suffer that we can't understand. You can't have it both ways, Tim said. Right, so like that's the psychology that we all wrestle with, right? And we wrestle with it personally. We wrestle when, when we watch loved ones going through things that bring us pain. We, we wrestle with it when we can't understand why does God not seem to be present here? Why does he seem to be asleep here? And there are very deep mysteries here. I mean, maybe the main thing to say is that the hiddenness of God is for our good. Were God some sort of cosmic bully controlling your every thought, right? Controlling your every bodily action? Like, what would that be? So he must hide himself. And in so doing, he sometimes looks to be asleep. And sometimes looking to be asleep, we might, we think, logically deduce that he must not care that we're perishing here. But this is why we can never reduce this to the kind of finger-wagging oughts and, you know, religious shoulds. I've been thinking a lot lately. I mean, being nice can be sort of cheesy, of course. But I've been thinking a lot lately. Be nice. People are carrying really heavy loads. Say that again. Be nice. Everybody is carrying a really heavy load. And the vast majority of people are doing the best they can. And they're, they're, they're finding and growing and coming to some sort of experiential knowledge of Jesus and me wagging my religious finger at them telling how they ought to feel or how they should feel or how they ought to be victorious through this. I mean, I might be able to say things that are true, but I just want you to consider true is not the same as helpful. Not always. 
requires wisdom, an interdirected wisdom, and a family wisdom, and a communal wisdom, a church wisdom, so that we have the ability to be with people who really think, I don't get this, this is overwhelming to me, it feels like Jesus is asleep, he doesn't seem to care that I'm perishing. And so Jesus, seeing this in his first friends, says to them, or asks them these questions, he says, if you look at your text, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And you might wanna especially notice that word still. Very important word. Have you still no faith? Meaning, as I said when I started, you've seen me heal the sick, you've seen me drive out demons, you, you've, you've heard my heart, you see the way I live. And it's meant to just say to them, like Jesus is saying something like, I can see that you have growing faith in me, but I can also see that when you've been put in this situation that's beyond your control, that your faith has turned to fear. And therefore, these are actually really good questions. Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? So we began this morning wondering together, maybe there are situations we're facing that causes us to be filled with fear. Well, I could say I got some things going on in my life that certainly could produce some anxiety, that could produce some weary, uh, worry, that could produce some fear of the future. So we began trying to just identify something like that. And then let Jesus ask you the same question. Why are you still so afraid? But strip out the religious overtones and undertones. Strip away the guilt. Strip away the shame. And just try to answer. What's your answer? I don't know. I'm not even sure exactly what mine would be, but it might go something like this. I don't know why my faith is often so small. I want it to be stronger. I want to be more consistent. I want to have really complete confidence during the big storms of my life. But as I said, you can't force that kind of confidence. That kind of confidence has to be the overflow of genuine personal experience. So if you're gonna to try to answer this question with any sort of reality, why are you still so afraid? You can't wallow in guilt, but we must seek the real answer to the question. And here's why. Jesus is always in reality. Your fear of the future doesn't exist. He can't, you know, he, he's not there. And our fears of having screwed up our life in the past, the past is gone, he's not there. Jesus is in the present. Jesus is, is in what's real. Jesus is never gonna be found in pretending or avoiding or hiding. He's found in saying, can't you see that I feel like I'm perishing and that you don't give a rat's behind? You're paying attention to yourself, you're tired. Right? I mean, who knows what was in their minds? What sort of accusations were in their minds? Maybe you're not lifting a finger to help us. Maybe you, you're just don't, aren't competent to notice. Maybe you don't care. Maybe you're just in, sort of into your own thing. I mean, who knows what sort of accusations were under that? Well, that's where you're gonna find Jesus. You're gonna find Jesus in what's real. And just saying maybe, Actually, I'm not sure you do care. 
I certainly can't see any sign of it. Or your absencing yourself from me does not feel edifying in this moment. Todd says you do that because that's just the way you are. And that if you don't absent yourself from us, that you would overwhelm us. Well, Lord, I'm not, I'm not particularly getting it right now. I don't get how you're absencing yourself is useful or edifying. See, it's only just being there in realness, and as I always say to you, be there like a child. You know, you know how little kids, what's it called they have when they start to develop object permanence, I think it's called? And, you know, they have to go through that stage of not just where'd my toy go, like they don't have a sense of behind me yet. But remember when they, when, when I forget how old kids are when they do this, maybe it's a year, year and a half, two, when they just cling to mom and they won't let go. Like they have to know where mom is at all times, like just holding on to her skirt or pants or whatever. And then you know how when they first begin to like maybe go out in the backyard and play a little bit, and then all of a sudden they'll just stop and come bursting in the house wondering, where's mom? So burst into the house like a child. Jesus, where are you? Just need to find you here. Because the absence I'm feeling, it's not working for me. Like, thank you that you don't want to overwhelm me. Thank you that I'm a person. Did you hear what I just said? Thank you that I'm a person and that I'm discreet from you. And thank God you are discreet from me. Thank God for the particularity between divinity and personhood. But Lord, I need a little connection here. I need there to be a connection between divinity that's often hidden from our conscious mind and my real life. See, the sleeping Jesus tells us that God is present, just not the way we want. And that man, he sure seems to take his time about storms. He lets them come and rage. He lets the boat start to sink before he does anything. And again, if we were to step back from the formational part of this and talk about the theological part of it, I think you have a picture here of Jesus' parable of the mustard seed. This is a tiny little seed and you plant it in the ground. It doesn't look like anything's happening. In fact, it looks like something's going tragically wrong. It may take weeks or months for that little seed to sprout, right? Lots of what happens when you plant a seed in the ground, the first thing that happens is not a shoot going above the ground. What's the first thing that happens when you plant a seed? It's a taproot that goes down and a whole root structure has to happen invisibly or else nothing can go public. You can't stick your little head, a little seed can't stick his little head out of the ground unless there's first this hidden bit. Only then can something, you know, sort of public happen. And so Mark is, I think, helping us see here that not just our personal experiences of God's hiddenness, but the sort of cosmic experience of God's hiddenness, this is explained in this mustard seed. So when finally Jesus is roused and he stops the storm, you know, the disciples say to each other, look at your text here, who is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? And as I thought about this text over the weekend, I, I, wondered, I wonder what they did expect Jesus to do. I wonder if they were, were expecting just some sort of manual labor. Hey, hold these things down or here, here's a bucket, you know, get some water out. Maybe they wanted him to say a prayer that God would somehow spare them through the storm. But whatever it is that they wanted or expected Jesus to do was exceeded by what he did. 
No one would have ever thought he's gonna stand up, talk to this wind and talk to these waves and they're gonna stop. So according to their logic, the only thing worse than having a storm in your life threatening to kill you outside of your boat is to have God in your boat. Now that's enough to really make you panic. Are you feeling me here? We always think, oh, you know, it would just be so nice if, you know, God were just with me and, you know, that sort of thing. And of course I get it. But just don't assume that there's nothing there to make you panic as well. So, of course, what's happening here is they're catching a glimpse of the power and the holiness, the sovereignty, the authority of Christ. They're beginning to learn to know what they're dealing with in him, that the living God is the creator and controller of all that he has created, all that they can see in their midst. They're beginning to see what John, who was sitting in this boat, okay, I need you to get this, the Apostle John, who's sitting in this boat, later when he goes to tell the story of Jesus, to write down the story of Jesus, do you remember what he begins with? He begins with a preface, or what scholars call prologue. There's a preface to the book of John. And do you remember what it says? In the beginning was the word. Peace. Be still. Utter calm. I wonder where you learned that. I wonder where you learned the power of the word. In the beginning was creator and master of the sea. In the beginning was the word, light, sky, earth and ocean, water in your place. Can you picture the Genesis story? Earth in your place, sky be separated, waters above, water below. That word John saw and experienced on that boat and he realized Genesis was right. It's good, it's very good living in the context of that word. So maybe Dallas is right. Jesus was relaxed. Maybe it's not that he didn't care. Maybe it's that he knew that he was not even close to be done with his life, and so his father was going to somehow save him. Somehow this was all going to be okay. There was this sort of fundamental confidence. Well, again, thinking about this for us formationally, how do we grow towards that sort of an inner life? And I think that we just need to think this morning that Jesus taught and practiced a life of peace and joy in the knowledge of God's complete nearness and care for him. And it's that sort of life that he's offering to his disciples as well. I want you to just consider with me this morning that it's that kind of knowledge that lay at the heart of Jesus's spirituality. You might not have even thought of that. You might even not have ever put those two words together before, Jesus's spirituality. But I want you to put them together right now. And just ask yourself, what funded, what imagination underlied the spirituality that you see in Jesus in the Gospels? And I wanna say, suggest, relaxed, peaceful, confidence in the nearness and power of his Father. And this sort of life is, of course, what Paul picks up when he says things like this all through his letters. Remember, he says, I learned how to be afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair. Somehow he was able to hear in his soul peace, be still. Peace, be still. Victor Hugo, the famous French writer, wrote, 
Have courage for the great sorrows of life and patience for the small ones. And when you have laboriously accomplished your daily task, go to sleep in peace, for God is awake. Isaiah 30 says, this is what the sovereign Lord says, in repentance and rest is your salvation, in quietness and trust is your strength. And Jesus said, if you notice my spirituality, so to speak, and if you value it, and if you desire it, come unto me, and you will find rest for your soul.